Take your Bible if you would. He is worthy, amen? And we are in his presence as we worship him today. And let's listen to his voice. And when we hear the word of God, it is God's voice, right? It is God's word. So let's open to the book of Hebrews, if you would, this morning. If you'd like to use the Bible, it's provided there. That's page 1002, 1002, if you'd like to turn there. Hebrews chapter 3 is our reading this morning. Hebrews 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Let's listen to this holy Lord who speaks to us this morning from his word. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of your confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope, the word of the Lord. As we go to prayer this morning, the Bible tells us that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And as we pray today, we want to pray with support for many families, but one particular family. Uh, in particular, we are praying for the family of one of our missionary partners dear to our hearts, uh, Eugene Groza, who uh, has been a dear, dear part of our uh, fellowship and service in Romania and around the world for many, many years, over 20 years. And Eugene was called home to be with the Lord uh, last week, about 10 days ago or so. And so we wanted to pray for Mahela. You see his wife there. They have two daughters. And and their uh, grandchildren, and so and also pray for our partner church there in Timisoara, uh, Bethany Baptist Church, and for the ongoing ministry uh, of Missio Link International that he led. And so we're so thankful for this dear brother, and truly his reward is great, <laughs> and uh, what he has accomplished in his life. He suffered much under communism, but uh, by God's grace, he was greatly used uh, during communism, and then, of course, afterward as a leader of God's people. And then, of course, our hearts are just uh, overwhelmed and saddened, and we pray for uh, all the families of the victims of the terrible, terrible tragedy at Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Unspeakable evil. Uh, We need to pray and pray for God to do what only He can do. Only God can bring good out of such terrible evil. We can only say that as we look to the cross because the cross is the greatest evil this world has ever known. And yet out of that, God brought uh, salvation. And so we pray that in the midst of this terrible situation that Christ will be lifted up. But we pray for the families, loved ones of those who have been, um, been massacred in this way. So let's just go to the Lord in prayer right now and ask for his blessing and as only he can give. So let's pray together. Almighty God, you are the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our sorrows. And Lord, we ask for you to be the God of comfort to those who are overwhelmed in sorrow. We give you thanks and praise today for the life and testimony of your servant, our dear friend and brother, 
We're so grateful for Eugene Groza. Thank you that he's entered into the presence of the Lord and uh, that he rests from his labors and his works are following him. And so we pray for Mahala and the family, Lord God, for our sister church and the ministry. Just uh, be strong for them. And oh God, our hearts are overwhelmed and we must confess to you we do not understand. And yet, Lord God, we look to you. Where can we look but to you? And, oh God, we ask that you will give grace and mercy to all the families there in Broward County, Florida, so devastated by this tragedy, this murder, unspeakable evil. Oh God, we pray that you will do what no one can do, but that you in the midst of utter darkness will be light. And Lord, I pray that the light of Jesus in word and deed and love and compassion will be expressed. And Lord, that out of this terrible darkness that the light will shine into many, many lives, the light of your love in Christ. So we pray today and we pray for our country, pray for our leaders, and we ask for your help. We ask for your wisdom. Now, Lord God, as we come here in your house once again, we are centered. We're centered in your presence. Because, Lord, we don't know what to do at times, but our eyes are on you. Thank you, Lord. And so we ask now that you would visit us in your grace. And, Lord, that you would bring comfort and encouragement. And, Lord, use this time to send out your light and your truth and bless our partner churches in this community that are sharing your truth and your gospel. Lord, may it be a great day, the expanding of your kingdom here in our community and around this world. We ask in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated and thank you so much for remaining standing for reading God's word and prayer. Appreciate that. Well, it's a blessing to uh, come to church this morning, not frozen or soaked. <laughs> it's been one or the other, it seems, for many, many uh, weeks. It's been, a, been a, a run on that. I enjoy the warmer weather. I'm looking forward to it. There's, say, 74 degrees on Tuesday, right? All right. And... Uh, don't expect me to break out my Bermudas or anything. That's, that, would be, that would just be wrong, I'll guarantee you. But I'm looking forward to that. I noticed as, yesterday, the day before, the daffodils starting to spring up, and so that's a good sign as well. I, I enjoy being outside. I enjoy especially walking. Uh, uh, the knees don't hold up to the running. They, they never really held up too good to that. But uh, the older I get, the better I was, I will tell you that. <laughs> But I do enjoy walking. There's a couple places in particular I really enjoy walking because you can do a couple of miles and get the inclines up and down. That's good for the cardiovascular. But also as you come to the end, you're able to be up where you can look and you catch your breath. I definitely need to do that. But also you can see where you've been. And so... I want us to do that this morning. I want us to just begin as we're here in Hebrews. I want us to take a moment, just catch our breath, and then also just kind of see where we've been. If you're our guest this morning, you've not been with us the last few weeks, we're making a journey through this incredible uh, book of the Bible, book of Hebrews. And so today we want to start by just stopping and remind ourselves, what's the reason that this letter was written? Sometimes as we get into God's Word, and it is God's Word, and it is all His Word, but there were always very human reasons why the Word of God was written. Those who received it were receiving it because of issues that led to its writing. The book of Hebrews was written because... The earliest Christians, most of the earliest Christians, were Jewish in their background, had come to believe in Jesus as Messiah, 
And the gospel was also now going not just out among the Jewish people, but also to those who were non-Jewish, the Gentile people as well. But in particular for those believers in Jesus who were Jewish, there was incredible price to be paid. Incredible persecution breaking out as they were committing themselves to follow Jesus as Messiah, proclaiming the Messiah had been crucified by the Romans and that he had risen from the dead the third day. That did not sit well with the religious establishment of the day. So many of the early believers, these Jewish believers, literally were disowned by their families. They were put out of the synagogues, not allowed to worship freely, openly in the temple, paying a terrible price, loss of jobs, loss of respect, considered to be traitors to their people. It was incredibly difficult for them to follow the Messiah. And many of them were thinking about turning back. Is is it worth it? And so it was that reason that the writer of Hebrews, though we don't know who he was or she was, we do know this person was writing with God's inspiration to challenge these people that they needed to hold firm to Jesus because Jesus is better. And anything we settle for other than Jesus is settling for less. And that's the reason this book was written, not to tell these Jewish believers, don't turn back. There's nothing to go back to that can be compared to Jesus because Jesus is better and also Jesus is greater. He's greater. And so you'll notice even as the book opens, look back as we're taking this pause here to look back. Chapter 1, verse 1, it starts with the very idea that Jesus is greater than all the prophets who have ever gone before. He says here, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers, that's the patriarchs, by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken not by prophets, but by his son. He has sent the ultimate messenger, that's his son. Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's not to be compared to Elijah or Elisha or Isaiah or Jeremiah. Great as they are, he's greater than the prophets. And then, beginning chapter 1, verse 4, and all the way through chapter 2, verse 4, we've seen that the writer then says, he's greater than all the angels. Now, why would he do that? Why would he want to prove that Jesus is greater than the angels? Why is that so important? Because to the Jewish people, the greatest messengers of all were the angels. When God had something very special to say, he would send that message by angels. And so the writer begins to show how that Jesus is greater than all the angels. They are servants of God, but he is the son of God. And all the angels worship him. All the angels are submitted to him. He's greater than the angels. Don't turn back because Jesus is better. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. But then these last couple of weeks, as we looked at chapter 2, beginning about verse 5, down to the end of the chapter, he talks about Jesus being made lower than the angels. He's greater than the angels, but for a time he was made lower than the angels. He, he came as man. The eternal Son, the Son of God, became a human being. And for a period of time, yes, he lived lower than the angels. He lived down here on earth. But why did he come to be lower than the angels for a period of time? Well, he came to do two things. He came to redeem God's family. He came so that God's family might be purchased from their slavery. 
Slavery to sin, slavery to the forces of evil, to Satan himself. He came to redeem them, purchase God's children out of slavery. He is the great emancipator, all right? And then he came not just to redeem God's family, but he came to restore God's family. He, he came to make what God had intended from the first to exist again, that God the Father and His children, human beings, would be family once again, and paradise would exist as it was intended to exist for all eternity. That all of that would be restored. Now, there'd be a great price that had to be paid for that, That was the redemption price. He had to be the sacrifice. He had to be the substitute for sin. But by dying, he would overcome death. And he would deliver God's children from what they have been afraid of all of their existence, the fear of death. And Jesus, with his timeless love, restored God's people backed himself by what he was accomplishing on the cross. He's restoring the family of God. He's bringing the children back to paradise. That's the whole picture. And so what's the writer saying? Don't turn back. Who could you compare to what Jesus has done? Who else is the redeemer? Who else is the restorer? There's nobody like him. So last week we looked at that Jesus is this heavenly brother who's come, and he's a brother like no other. But what I want you to see this morning is that all Jesus did, he did for the family. He did for the family of God. He did for his father, and he did for his brothers and sisters who share God as their father in him. He did all this that the family of God might be restored. And in our family, Jesus is the greatest of the great, right? He's the greatest of the great in the family of God. Now, this week, my cousin Chris, who lives in Pennsylvania, a few years younger than me, came to visit. He was on some business. He stopped by, stayed at our house overnight. And uh, it was really great to spend some time with him. I like to tease Chris because several years ago he decided that uh, he felt like the Lord wanted him in worshiping in the, in the Presbyterian church. All right? Uh, now the family got over that. All right? And, uh, but I, like, we tease each other about him. I told him one time, I said, you know, Chris, you know what a Presbyterian is, don't you? He said, no, Sam, what's that? I said, a Presbyterian is a Baptist who got an education. That's what a Presbyterian is. <laughs> so we laugh about that. But we were telling stories about our family. And as I said, I'm a few years older than him. We're from the same hometown. And we, we love telling stories about our family. Now, my mom had 11 brothers and sisters. My dad had six. And so, boy, did we have cousins, all right? had cousins, and we just shared some great stories about what it was like to be raised up with all the aunts and uncles, all the cousins, and a wonderful, wonderful family. But here's what we talked about. Many of our heroes are people in our family. And isn't that really great? When some of the greatest heroes you have are people in your own family. But let me tell you, as he and I shared... The true hero of our family is Jesus Christ. Because you can trace our family history. And quite frankly, it's a mess. Anybody's family tree, a little crooked. (laughs) It's a mess. But many years ago, when I was a boy, I remember, I didn't understand it then, but the Lord... And his grace started doing amazing things in our family as one by one people became followers of Jesus. 
And it was incredible to see what God did in our family as uh, aunt and uncle, another aunt and uncle, and cousins, and then ultimately my own father became followers of Jesus. Jesus transformed our family. He transformed our family. He's the hero of our family. And so here's the lesson. Here's the lesson in particular in the next service for the children who take notes in that. Here's the lesson, but for all of us children of all ages, here is the lesson this morning. We must be careful to never place the heroes in our life above the Lord of our life. No matter who the heroes are in your life, greater than those heroes is the Lord of our life. Now that's how the writer this morning, I want you to see in what we've just read, verses 1 through 6, that is how he kindly challenges his family. These people who are his brothers and sisters in Christ, they have professed faith in Christ, he challenges them kindly to not put anybody as their hero above the Lord of their life, Jesus Christ. Now notice he calls them holy brothers. Do you see that in verse 1? He says, therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, holy brothers. How does, what does it mean to be a holy brother? And the word brother here means, can means brothers, sisters. It's neutral in its sense. How do, you, how do you become holy? How many of us know you don't become holy by your own holiness? It happens by the work of the Lord. It happens by God's grace. It happens by what He does in your life. And that's the reason the writer says here, you are holy brothers. That is, you've been set apart for God. You're His family. And this has happened as a result of a heavenly calling. A heavenly calling. That means that people who are part of God's family are people that the Lord Himself has called. He's drawn them. It's a heavenly calling. Nothing of earth can do it. It has to start with God. Salvation is of the Lord. Let me tell you the difference between salvation and quote-unquote religion. And I don't care what title you give to the religion. And you can give it a denominational title, but if it teaches this, it's religion. Religion is man or woman trying to make himself or herself acceptable to God. That's religion. Salvation is a God who comes to unacceptable sinners and makes them acceptable through His Son, Jesus Christ. And Draws them to himself. That's salvation. That's salvation. And so here he is making a challenge to these who have professed faith in Christ. And he gives two challenges very briefly. I want you to see this morning. He makes two challenges to these people. Now remember what's going on. He's lifting up Jesus and saying Jesus is greater. Jesus is better He's speaking to people who say they are followers of Jesus. They say they are believers in Jesus, but it is so hard, it's so difficult, they're being tempted to turn back. And here's what his challenge is. First of all, his challenge is this, and it's its challenge for us today. The challenge is for us to have a steadfast focus on Jesus. A steadfast focus on Jesus. Look at verse 1. He says this. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He says, consider Jesus. Now, I want you to know that's the only the second time that word that's underlying the English word there, it's the only second time that's ever used in the New Testament. It doesn't mean just look at Jesus. It doesn't mean just recognize Jesus. It doesn't even mean just to think some about Jesus. The word here that's translated consider 
is the same word that Jesus himself used when he said to his disciples, consider the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, but God provides for them. Then he said, consider the lilies, same word. They don't toil, they don't spin, but even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. What was Jesus saying? He wasn't just saying, look at the birds. He wasn't saying, just think about the lilies. What was he saying? Perceive the truth about the birds. Perceive the truth of what I'm saying about these lilies. There's a great truth here that you don't want to miss. That God who provides for the birds and provides for the flowers, don't you perceive He's going to provide for you? Now this is the same word that he is using here. He's saying when he says consider Jesus, when the author says consider Jesus, what does he mean? Perceive who Jesus is. Put your mind on this. Focus on who Jesus is. Perceive the truth, the reality about Jesus. And notice what he says. I want you to perceive that Jesus has a unique ministry. He has a ministry like no one else. Perceive Jesus, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He calls Jesus an apostle. Isn't that strange? I thought Jesus called the apostles. I thought he appointed 12 to be apostles. Well, he did. But what does an apostle mean? An apostle means literally a sent one or a representative. Someone who speaks on behalf of someone else in a official capacity. So what is he saying about Jesus? He says Jesus is the apostle. He is God's messenger. Perceive that Jesus is God's one-of-a-kind messenger. He's right back where he started. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Isn't he right back where he started? Long ago and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, who is God. He's the God who speaks. God is not silent. God is not quiet. God speaks and He reveals Himself. How does He speak and how does He reveal Himself? Through Jesus. He's God's apostle. He has come with God's message of love and salvation and hope and also the message of warning for those who do not turn to Him. Jesus is the apostle. There's, he's God's messenger, unlike any other. And then he says Jesus is the high priest. An apostle is a messenger. What's a high priest? A high priest is a mediator. An apostle is one who speaks for God to men. A mediator is someone who speaks for men to God. He is the go-between between human beings and God. He is the high priest. He's the mediator. He is the one and only mediator. You remember what the Apostle Paul said? The Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, what did he tell Timothy, that young pastor? He said this. He said, there is one God and one and only one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, friends, many people around the world will say, well, you know, there really is only one God. We all use different names for him. We use different titles for him. But there's really only one God. And that is true as far as it goes. There is only one God. But here's the rest of the message. 
there is only one God and there is only one person who is the mediator between God and men. There is only one who can bring God and mankind together and that is the man Christ Jesus. There is no other prophet. This cannot be done by and was not done by Buddha. It cannot be done and was not done by Confucius. It cannot be done and was not been done by Muhammad. There is only one mediator between God and men. That is the man Christ Jesus. There's no one like him. This is what the writer is saying. Mediator is a, it's a contract word. It's a covenant word. It means there's only one who can bring two parties together. And he can do it, thank God, right? He can break down the wall between us and God. No matter what you think the wall is between you and God, and it may seem like the great wall of China in your mind. You may think you are so far separated from God that there's not a possibility that you and God could ever get together. And I want to tell you, my friend, that is absolutely not true. Because our great Savior, Jesus Christ, by what He did in His life, His death, and His resurrection, He has broken down the biggest walls between any sinner and God. And He brings them together. So they're no longer God and sinner, but Father and child. Isn't that wonderful? There's no one like Jesus. That's, that's this writer's main point. There's no one like Jesus. Jesus is our mediator. He, he's the mediator of a unique covenant. There's no one like him. Now, immediately then, what are Jewish people who are reading this, what are some of them immediately going to say? What, what are they immediately going to say? You know what? He already expects what they're going to say. Here's what they're going to say in our vernacular. Time out here. Wait just a minute. Wait just a minute. What about Moses? Hey. It was Moses who went up and got the commandments. It was Moses who got the law. It was Moses who brought our fathers out of Egypt. It was Moses who was leading the people through the wilderness all those years. What about Moses? And so notice what the writer does next. He says Jesus has not only a unique ministry, is he the apostle and the high priest? He also has, listen carefully, a very unique majesty. There's no one like him. And he goes straight to Moses. Verse 2. He says... Consider Jesus, verse 2, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as also was Moses was faithful in all God's house. Now notice how he begins. He compares Jesus to Moses. He says, Jesus was faithful in what he was called to do, just as Moses was faithful. He compares him to Moses. And what a compliment. I mean, for anybody to be compared to Moses. That's an incredible compliment. But it's what he says next that's so staggering and stunning. Notice what he says that's so shocking. The next thing he says, verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Today, people might say, boom. <laughs> boom. He is great. Moses is great. As a matter of fact, Jesus was faithful to God just as Moses was faithful to God. But Jesus has been counted. And that word counted is valued weighed in a scale and valued to be of greater worth than Moses. Now, do you get the writer's point? 
Do you follow him? Some of these Jewish people who have professed faith in Jesus as Messiah because it's so hard, it's so difficult, it's costing so much, they're thinking about turning back. They're thinking about going back. But whom will they be turning back to? Who will they be going back to? If they go back to their Judaism, they will be going back to whom? Moses. And he says you can't go back to Moses because Jesus is greater than Moses. There, there's no comparison between Jesus and Moses. Now this isn't an anti-Semitic statement. Let's stop here for a minute. Can we just remind ourselves? Listen carefully. Jesus was Jewish. Right? So how could any follower of Jesus who is truly a follower of Jesus ever be anti-Semitic? And I want to tell you, if you are anti-Semitic, you've got a real problem deep in your heart. You probably don't know the king of the Jews, the Lord Jesus. He's Jewish. Anybody who says they're a Christian and spouts out anti-Semitic anti-Jewish, anti-human being speech is saying out of their heart, they do not know the King of love and glory, Jesus. And don't let yourself listen to those shock jocks on the radio and get sucked into that. Don't you find yourself rallying with people who are spewing out hate. Don't you find yourself forwarding on your Facebook pages Statements that are written by hate-filled people. I don't care what your political party is. I don't care what your view is on social issues or economic issues. The one I'm talking to you about is far above all that. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the Lord of all human beings. He loves human beings. And yes, he's Jewish. Boom. <laughs> I'm not doing it for applause. You trust me on this. Some of you need to stop promoting people of hate. You are disgracing your Lord Jesus Christ by supporting people who speak the devil's hate. Boom, boom. <laughs> I'm saying that this morning to say that's what the real issue is we're struggling with in this country. It's hatred. Don't let anybody tell you it's political division. Deep down in the root, it's hatred. But I want to tell you, there's a cure for hatred. It's the love of God that makes enemies brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. You know that wasn't in my notes. Did you know that? <laughs> can, you, can you imagine that? He says, you can't go back. You can't go back. Jesus is Savior of all men. He's speaking to, as a Jewish person, my brothers and sisters, you can't go back to our narrow sectarianism. Our Messiah is the Messiah of all people. He came to die for all the nations of the earth and to be Lord and brother to all. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. And just to prove his point, he uses a couple of examples here. Just notice these. He uses the example of comparing Moses to Jesus. He said it's like comparing a building to a builder. Who gets the more glory? The building or the builder of the building? Look at verse 3. For Jesus has been counted 
worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now you're going to notice something here. He uses the word house seven times. Seven times. Beginning at verse 2, down through verse 6, seven times. The word for house is oikos. Oikos. And it means, it can mean a building, or it can mean a system, an economy. You ever heard of the word economics? Oikonomos. This is the word it comes from. Or it can mean family. Usually it means family. The oikos is the extended family. It's the household. Now here in this passage, it means a building and also the family, the household in the building. And the first example, he's talking about the building. And he's comparing Moses to Jesus. He says Moses is like the building. He's, he's the one who, who established and led this National gathering. But who built the building? Jesus. Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses represents the building, but Jesus is the builder. This is one of the clearest statements in the Bible. Maybe you read right past it. I did for a long time. That Jesus is equal to God. Look what it says. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Who did he just call the builder in the verse before? Jesus is the builder. And here he says the builder of all things is God. What he is saying here is that Jesus is the Lord of Israel. He's, he's not just the build, he's just not the building, he is the builder. He is the God of Israel. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have one of our family gatherings, March 4th, 5 p.m. We're going to be talking about 2020 vision, looking forward on some strategic initiatives for us as a church. We've shared these several times, these family gatherings. If you've not been able to come, I hope that you'll mark your calendar for 5 o'clock on March the 4th. And we're going to be talking about what we believe God wants us to do in terms of our life as a congregation together. Uh, what He's calling us to do in our community around us. We call it our Cedar Brook, Cedar Bluff Middlebrook. But also what He's calling us to do maybe on our campus. To help us with our mission, serving people here and serving our community. And we believe God very well may be leading us over the next few years to build uh, another building or two. We'll have a lot to say about that. But the last building that we built was the hub. Incredible building, the student center over here. A wonderful building. But you know that building... <laughs> was entered into a competition. It was an architectural competition. After it was finished, it was entered into a competition, 5,000 entries for buildings, $2 million or less, for public space and usage. It was entered into this competition. It was like the Olympics of buildings, all right? It earned first place. First place. First place of the 5,000 entries. Now guess what? When that award was given, it was an amazing thing. Can you imagine? They didn't come and put the award on the building. They gave the award to the architect. Damon Falconer. He got the award. Why? Because the building didn't earn it. It was the builder, the designer, and he got the award. Damon got the award. I haven't asked him if there was any money with that award. I need to ask him about that. I need to be finding out about that. 
But that's the author's point. He's saying, listen, Moses, yes, he, he, we think of Moses. He's the building. He's, he's, he's the guy that represents our nation. But it is the one who built the people of God. It's Jesus himself who deserves the praise and the honor. He compares him building to a builder. And then notice this as we close. He compares, it's like comparing a servant to the son. Comparing Moses to Jesus is like comparing the servant to the son. Look at verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. See that word servant? Only time it's used in the New Testament. Very, very unique word. It means literally the manager, the steward, the overseer. He was a servant, but he was a special servant. He was a therapon, is the word. He's the ruling steward. He's the highest manager. That's who Moses is. He was faithful in God's house as the highest manager. But Christ, look at verse 6, is faithful over God's house as a what? Son. As a son. A servant may manage the family, but it is the son, the heir, who is the master of the family. That's what he's saying about Jesus. He says, are you going to turn back? Moses, as great as he was, was just the highest of the servants. Are you going to turn back from the son of God? To turn back? To a servant? Moses wouldn't want you to do that because Moses was the one who was testifying that there was one coming greater than him. This whole passage is about family. It's about being the household of God. And he says, be steadfast as the family of God. If you're part of the family of God, keep your steadfast focus on Jesus and make sure, here's the second challenge, and here's the final thought, make sure you have a steadfast faith in Jesus. Look at verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we, that's the followers of Jesus, His assembly, His church. We are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We are God's house if we hold fast to our confidence, that true trust in Christ. If we hold fast to our boasting, that is not in ourselves, but our exalting in our true hope in Jesus. We are God's house if we hold fast. Now folks, I just want you to know something. I'm reading the Bible to a lot of Baptists right now. And I can speak to Baptists because I are one. I told you what a Presbyterian was. It's just, you know. What do we believe the Bible teaches? Eternal security. Someone asked me the other day. I shook him up a little bit. Evidently, asked me right down here. Are you saying, do you believe, do you believe, Pastor, that once a person is saved, they're always saved? Do you believe that? Do you believe that a person who is once saved is always saved, and here's what I said. Yes, if they are really saved. If they are really saved. How do you know if someone's really saved? How do you know? <laughs> One day I was in New York City. Guy was selling Rolex watches out of the trunk of his car. 
Oh, they, they looked real. They looked real. And there was some Wall Street guys that were walking by, and they chuckled a little bit. And I said something like, what do you think about this? And he said, I said, they look real. I said, what's the difference? Here's what the guy said. The real ones last. The real ones last. How do you know if someone's a Christian? The real ones last. The proof of our faith is confirmed by the perseverance of our faith. The proof of our faith is that we persevere in believing into Jesus. This is the warning, and there are several of them in the book of Hebrews. The Lord is speaking to people who've professed faith in Jesus. They have professed faith in Jesus. And He's saying, yes, if... You continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. When we are saved, it's not God giving you a free pass to live however you want to live. It's not a get out of hell card that you give to him on the judgment day. To be a Christian is to be born again. To have faith in Jesus is a faith that was brought into your heart, not out of yourself, but it was a heavenly calling. Right? And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. My dear friend, if you have a faith that has not worked on earth, do not expect it to work when you stand before God. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm not talking about that. But I want people to hear this and hear well. People who have faith in Jesus, they stray, they stumble, they fall, but God by His grace lifts them up and they keep on believing in Jesus. And that's the only person who can acclaim assurance of their salvation. You cannot claim assurance of salvation when you're living like the devil. You can only claim assurance of your salvation if in your life there is demonstrated that you have by God's grace come to believe and you keep on believing. Then we are truly the house of God. So what's my challenge, friends? Turn to Jesus. You don't need to get back into church. You need to come to Jesus. This church cannot do anything for you other than point you to Jesus Christ. And no other church can as well. Great as churches are around here, the only thing a great church will do is lead you to the king of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he can sure enough fix you up. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Christ. And I want to plead with you. Come back to Jesus. Some of you drifted away. Come back to Jesus. Come back to Jesus. Do not go astray in following any other hero. I don't care how handsome he is or she is. Don't you follow a dream that's a pipe dream and fake and phony. Come back to Jesus. Return to Jesus your soul is at stake. Come back to Jesus. And I want to tell you what Jesus always has. Open arms. Amen? Amen.